0: All right, today's passage is going to be in Romans 8. Hi. Hey, how are you? <laughs> All right. I like that kid. Yeah, just a few years, he'll be in student ministry. That'll be fun. All right. <clears throat> um, today's passage will be in Romans 8. You can find your worship folder, your uh, bulletin. Um, I'll read it, and then uh, we'll get started. Romans 8, 29 through 39. This is the word of the Lord. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he called, he predestined. Oh, sorry. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Pray with me. Father, uh, God, we just ask that you um, would remind us, even in this moment, that as we said at the very beginning of this service, that you the creator of heaven and earth, have called us here together today. Some of us are here just out of habit. This is what we do on a Sunday. Some of us are here uh, because our parents drug us here. Some of us are here because a spouse drug us here. God, some of us have no idea why we're here. Some of us are here and hoping that this will make up for something that happened this weekend. But God, help us to trust that right now, in this moment, you have called us here and that you have seen to it that we are in this place today. If you wanted us somewhere else, we would be there. And so you have something for us today, something to hear and something to trust. God, as your gospel is proclaimed today, I pray that for the person in here who has heard it a thousand times, that it would be as if they heard it for the first time. And God, for the person who hears it today for the first time, I pray that it sounds sweet enough that they would wanna hear it a thousand times over. Father, just be with us today. In your name I pray, amen. All right, well, uh, for Christmas this year, I bought uh, my wife a book by uh, the comedian and TV star Aziz Ansari. Uh, it was called Modern Romance. And in it, he was trying to kind of outline or, or take a look at what uh, romance and dating and marriage and singleness looks like uh, in the modern era, uh, specifically targeting like, what it looks like for millennials. Uh, and he, in a Forbes magazine article, he said that uh, he set out to document the changing state of love, that in his mind, the way his parents had dated or the way his parents had gotten married and the way that, that he and all his friends uh, were interacting was just completely different. Um, and it's interesting because in the book, he kind of has this uh, um, tension, uh, between both, uh, he recognizes in millennials. That's the, like my current generation. You probably have heard people talk about it, and everyone's always saying why millennials are ruining the world or something like that. Um, but in millennials, he notices this this common thing. And in him, and and I kind of recognize in me both this this romantic side, this this like romantic side that idealizes things like love, that wants companionship, that wants to have someone to go through life with, that wants to be caught up in romance, but also this cynicism, this cynicism about uh, something specifically as as kind of uh, institutional as marriage, that that they love the idea of dating. In fact, uh, the online dating industry is now a $2.4 billion a year industry. Millennials are dating like crazy, but they aren't getting married. Uh, In fact, there's a couple of stats. Uh, Rates of marriages in millennials, our generation, is down to 70%. First, that seems like a lot, but the baby boom generation uh, was uh, 91% of baby boomers, which that's a hard word to say a lot, Um, baby boomers, uh, 91% of them got married, 82% of generation X uh, people got married, and now uh, millennials are down to 70%. In fact, another stat said um, that 25% of millennials are likely to never get married. That's the highest in modern history. So there's this romantic, they're dating, we want companionship, but no one's getting married. In fact, one uh, writer called it, uh, there, it's, it's a romantic cynicism, that millennials are romantic cynics, that they, they, they have these two things kind of at war within them. Uh, there's an Atlantic article by Alice Walton called Why Aren't Millennials Getting Married? And so she was setting out to try to figure this out. Uh, And for her, it was really confusing because uh, there was actual research that's been done uh, that that shows some of, like, the actual health benefits that married couples experience, not just, like, from your employer, like, health benefits, but, like, actual, like, healthy lifestyle benefits. And what was interesting to her was that these health benefits that married couples experience, uh, couples that cohabitate, that aren't married, that are living together, don't, uh, like, research shows that they don't get the same health benefits that a married couple does which is just interesting, Uh, that the couples who live together without actually getting married don't experience some of the benefits that married couples do. And so she's wondering, well, if that's the case, why wouldn't millennials get married? And here's what she kind of comes down to. She said, people who opt for cohabitating over marriage tended to cite the fear of divorce as the central reason not to get married. She said this, it may be the looming possibility of divorce that's driving more people to choose the question, will you move in with me over, will you marry me? And I think that's interesting, the fear of divorce. There's a cynicism about uh, marriage. It's not that we don't believe in love, us millennials. Uh, it's not that we don't believe in these, these things. It's not that we don't want them. We're just cynical about it really lasting. We're cynical about whether or not love can really last. Aziz Ansari, even in that book, shows a lot of the kind of, in his mind, the ridiculousness of marriage. And he's saying, people decide to get married after spending a year and a half dating each other. He's like, I've had sweaters for a year and a half that I've gone, why do I have this sweater? I wanna get rid of the sweater. And he's saying, this is crazy. And and in it, he shows this kind of um, cultural milieu of, of millennials where we just are cynical about whether or not love can really last. And so at the end of this series on worth, I want us to ask that question. Uh, But I want us to ask it more about, uh, does God's love really last? Or is there something in us, and I would bet there is, because I find it in me, something in me that's very cynical about the idea that God really could love me and it never changing. In fact, the word in this passage for nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, the word for separate is the same Greek word that elsewhere in the New Testament is used for divorce nothing, Paul is saying nothing could cause God to divorce himself from us. But if you're like me, when I, I remember as a kid reading this, and I I don't know, maybe I was just a weird kid, but uh, I kind of read it like with these like kind of lawyer glasses on where I kind of looked through it and I was like, okay, let's see. He's saying this can't, this can't, this can't. He says that tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword, none of those can separate us from God. I'm like, Sure, like, I, I totally agree. And I remember reading it and thinking that, a thought that I don't even know if I could have verbalized it, but I remember thinking, he didn't say me. Like, he says all these things outside of me, which I get, I get, I get that, you know, all those things can't separate me, can't cause God to, to, to push me away. But what about me? Could I screw this up? Could I do something that could eventually push God over the edge and cause him to just wipe his hands and walk away. The end of the the series on worth is we've talked about worth and we've talked about all these things. We want us to ask, could this really last? Uh, I asked a couple people on staff, so these are like the professional Christians. So if you're in here and you're going like, I don't know if I really get this, uh, these are the people that really have it all together. Kidding. Um, I asked them uh, about this passage and, and kind of what What kind of evokes uh, within them in it? And here's some of the things that uh, we talked about. Uh, One person said, uh, it's hard to believe this passage. It's hard to really uh, come to grips with this passage because as they put it, my sin chases me around every day. And I love that is that we constantly find ourselves screwing up. We constantly find ourselves breaking promises that we made. We constantly find ourselves screaming at our kids. We constantly find ourselves taking another drink when we had said a long time ago we would never do that again. We constantly find ourselves screwing up. Our sin chases us around. And it, and it can be easy to think, if I never get better, will God's love for me Change. Another person said, if there's a scripture that's, I love this. If there's a scripture that's most true, it's this. If there's a scripture that's most true, like most like yes and amen, I love that, it's this. But if there's one that I believe the least, it's this. If there's a scripture that's most true, it's gotta be this. But if there's one that I have the hardest time believing, it's this one. We constantly forget We constantly operate out of a sense of I have to earn something. We constantly forget that God really could love us and it might not ever change. Another person said, I never feel like I really belong, Uh, this this is great, I never feel like I really belong in the we or us part of this passage. In other words, Paul is probably talking about the really good people When he's saying nothing could separate us, we are more than conquerors, Paul's probably not talking about me. He's probably talking about some of the people that have their life together, some of the people that don't really screw up the way I do. He's probably not referring to me. I personally felt this way, and a couple years ago, my dad really helped put some words to this. We were having a family dinner. It was kind of one of I was home from seminary. My sister, I have two sisters. One of them was home from, uh, college. My other sister was in high school. So it's kind of one of those things where if you have uh, uh, kids that are outside of the home now, when they, they come back, you all eat dinner and you all kind of act like, yeah, oh, remember when we used to do this? Even though we didn't because everyone was busy all the time. But it's like, yeah, oh, we, we used to do this all the time. So we were having dinner and it was, it was fun. And, and uh, a lot of my, my, my dinner table at home is a lot of like a lot of laughter, but a lot of uh, d- debates about politics and theology. You, you would love it. Um, I love it. But uh, at one point, my dad kind of just, and and this did not happen often, which is, I think, one of the reasons why it stuck out to me so much. My dad kind of leaned back in his chair and kind of room, okay, that was weird, you know, got silent. My dad just said, you know, I've been thinking about something lately. He said, my whole life, I've believed that God's grace was good enough for my salvation. But I don't think I believe, I, I, I haven't believed that it's good enough for my acceptance, like my whole life, I've understood in my head that God's grace and God's love really brought me in. I'm in the party. Like I've been invited, I've been brought in. But I always thought that it was up to me to prove that I belonged. In other words, grace was good enough to, to, to forgive me, but it wasn't good enough for God to say, this is my beloved son or daughter and in them I am well pleased that was up to me. That was up to me to get better. That was up to me to make myself look better. That was up to me to, to make promises that, that hopefully, hopefully, hopefully I could, I could keep them. That was up to me to, to be a good dad, be a good husband, be a good employer. It was up to me to earn his acceptance. And when he said that, it put, uh, it put words to something that I had been feeling for a long time. And I just thought like, yes, that, that's exactly how I've been feeling. That, that I had to earn God's acceptance. Even Paul in the chapter before this, he gets to this exasperating point in Romans 7. Uh, Romans 7, just to sum it up, he's kind of like unveiling the curtain on on his basically his soul and going, "Here's, here's what my internal life looks like. Here's what I wrestle with. And he's kind of saying like, hey, the things that I don't wanna do, I end up doing. And the things that I do wanna do, I find myself not doing them. In other words, he says, I have two things waging war within me. And, and he even gets to this one point that if Paul could have written, written in all caps, I think he would have. He says, who will save me from this body of death? That Paul understood this thing within him where he could not uh, consistently get good enough or better. We end up viewing God as uh, Robert Farr capen calls him the eternal bookkeeper. He, he says that we view God like a divine little CPA. Divine little accountant up there just writing down all the things we do, like Santa Claus, you know, p- hoping that enough things are on the good side that he would finally be happy with us. Well, today I have good news and I have even better news, hopefully. This passage really is for you, and you really are loved. And we'll look at two things to prove it. Uh, first, and I hate that these alliterate, but that's just the way it is. Uh, an unchangeable plan and two unanswerable questions. An unchangeable plan and two unanswerable questions. So first, the unchangeable plan, Romans 8, 29 through 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So those who he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, your end goal, the thing that God has, is moving you towards if you are in Christ, is you are going to look a lot like Jesus. In fact, the amazing thing about the gospel is that God takes people who either functionally or actually literally like self-awarely, uh, self-awarely, I don't know, uh, actually hate God and are enemies of God and resist God and he turns them through the power of his spirit into people that look like his Son. You're going to look a lot like Jesus. That is your glorification. He says, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. Those those words, justified. We kind of get that I was justified back then on, like, at the cross. Maybe some of us don't. At the cross, the whole idea of it is that there and then, and through his resurrection, God justifies the sinner before him. God declares the sinner. God declares you and I righteous, and it happened back then. It's past tense. In the same tense, he uses for the word glorified. That he, those who he justified, he also glorified. He talks about. Glorification in the past tense. Now that's interesting because glorification is something that's going, to, like it's something to happen in the future. And here's what Paul is saying. It is so assured that if you've been justified and you've been called, and if you have been brought into relationship with God, it is so assured that you will end up looking like Jesus that I can even talk about it as if it's already happened. I could talk about it in the past tense. Before you ever had a chance to screw this thing up, God finished it. God is not through with you yet. And God won't stop working on you until you look like Jesus. Do you look like Jesus? Well, then God is still working. God is writing your story and it begins with you being separated from him and ends up with you being a dead ringer for his son. And you don't have a thing to do with it. All of these verbs, the subject of them is he. He called, he foreknew, he justified, and he glorified. It's not he justified and then he gave them like a little running head start or gave them a little push and they kind of you know, got the wheels moving and, and finally kind of worked up to their, just, or their glorification. He is doing it. And you cannot screw up what God is doing. So two unanswerable questions. One, uh, this is in eight thirty-three through 35. One, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. In other words, if you've been justified, if you've been declared righteous, then in this courtroom, in this imaginary courtroom, who's gonna bring a charge against you? I love it. It's this idea of like there's a courtroom where a judge is chased off the prosecutor. The person who had their like whole case ready and he's ready to present to the judge why this, the defendant's guilty. The judge, before the whole thing even started, said, oh, by the way, you're out, I'm done. They're mine. Uh, it reminds me of, uh, there's a scene in Zechariah 3. Excuse me. Scene in Zechariah 3 where uh, the uh, angel of the Lord uh, is, is, you get this picture of the courtroom of God and, and, and uh, there Joshua, the high priest of Israel. And the high priest was supposed to be the representative of God, the, the person who goes between the people of God and God. And so just to cut out a lot of the middle work of seminary stuff, you should see yourself in Joshua. That's you, that, that he represents the people of God standing for them. And in this scene, the high priest is standing there with tattered clothes and dirty and he looks awful. And that is not a good sign for us. That is not a good sign for if Israel's watching that going, no, 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 the person who's representing us is supposed to look like good and supposed to be able to say like, hey, I'm presenting you my people, like we look we're, we're, we're holy, we're set apart, we look, we, we love us. And instead, Joshua is standing there in tattered robes and, and dirty. And it says, uh, in three, one through two, it says, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord, uh, just again to cut out some of the middle work, uh, that's Jesus, um, just trust me. Uh, and before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So you have you and I standing there in tattered robes and, and all of, our, all of our, the ways we screw things up and Satan is standing right here accusing us. Satan isn't just this kind of divine like tempter who walks around and like tempts you to steal cookies from the cookie jar. Um, he, he does that a little bit, but Satan is also that voice that shows up after you've done something and says, I knew you would do this again. I knew that last time when you said this, wasn't your, this was your last time, I knew you would do it again. I knew you would yell at your kids again. You knew it. You're always gonna be like this. You're a failure. That is the voice of Satan. And Satan is standing next to him, accusing him. And I love what happens. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem. In other words, I've chosen this people. Rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? In other words, he's saying, Satan, I have already decided that they belong to me and that I love them. So you're done. This reminds me of a time on uh, family vacation. We were at, uh, as any good family does, we went to Dollywood. Um, I don't know why we, yeah, all right. Some fans of Dollywood, okay. So we were at Dollywood and um, was at some point in the day we were in line, which any amusement park, half the time you spend there is in line. Um, And someone up ahead of us decided that they didn't want to be—they didn't want to wait through line, which I get. No one likes waiting in line. So this woman cuts in in front of this older guy, this man up up ahead of us in the line, and she cuts in front. And the guy did not appreciate this, and no one really appreciated it, but he really didn't appreciate it. And so he proceeds to take her hair and to pull her back forcefully. Have you ever seen that video of that? Soccer girl, just yanking people's hair. It was like that. Uh, pulls her back. Now, real quick, uh, my dad's standing there, and this is my second story about my dad, so happy Father's Day to my dad if he's listening. Um, but uh, my dad's standing there, and, and just to tell you what this story is not, this, this story is not my dad, like, white knighting, coming to the defense of some helpless woman. Um, this is a Dollywood woman, and uh, Dollywood women can take care of themselves. So he pulls her back and uh, she proceeds to turn around and punch this man in the face, and they start fighting. Okay, so we're in Dollywood, and a fight breaks out between a man and a woman, and a woman who can definitely hold her own with this man, and so this kind of chaos breaks out, and I think me and my sisters are like, this is amazing. This is a, we never see a fight. We go to Christian school, and you know, uh, and there's commotion, and all of a sudden, my dad And my dad is a very gentle man. He's very quiet. He's not somebody that is normally loud. My dad kind of, all of a sudden you get this booming voice where he just said, hey, 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 hey. Sorry, Uh, nine o'clock, that like everyone's like, oh gosh. Uh. (laughs) Suddenly he starts, he shouts and he yells and and suddenly this weird thing happens where the dynamic of the whole line change where these two people who are fighting suddenly stop and look at him And and they begin to actually answer to him. Now, these people are both probably older than my dad. And also, in a fight, um, if you've ever seen a fight or if you've ever looked one up on YouTube because you had a really sheltered life, uh, people talk, people yell around fights. It's not like a fight happens and everyone just goes quiet. People are yelling. People. There's always one guy going like, hey, guys, come on, stop, 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 stop. I mean, it's not, the whole idea of a fight is you were so focused in and so, like, angry that you, everything else goes out the window, including any of the consequences of this, and you were just going to fight this person. But my dad, and, and whatever gravitas or charisma he summoned up in that moment, stopped the whole thing. And suddenly, they turn and look at him, and the guy goes, well, she started it, you know? <laughs> and it's like, it's like, they suddenly became these children talking to my dad, and my dad's like, and, and my dad I'll never forget, he just was so, he didn't let up and he didn't answer them. He didn't kind of go like, yeah, you know, like, oh, did she start it? Okay, well, let's work this out. He just said, I don't care who started it. It's done. Take it elsewhere. You're done. And that, that is the picture of the Lord rebuking your accuser. The, The Lord doesn't answer your accuser. Like, Like, you know, Satan's saying, like, I told you they would do this. You cannot love this person. He's like, well, you gotta understand, like, they've had a really hard life. Uh, You gotta understand, there's a lot of extenuating circumstances. You gotta understand, their marriage was really, really difficult before that that moment. I, I kinda understand what happened. No, the Lord doesn't answer the accuser. He rebukes him. And he says, I don't care who started it. I don't care about the details. I have already decided to love them. You're done. So who is a uh, second question who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that was raised who is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us I love this the one person who could and should condemn you the judge has already decided that he refuses to condemn you has already actually died for you in John 5:22 Jesus says, the father judges no one but has given all judgment to the son. In other words, God has said here, Jesus, you, uh, all judgment is yours. You're the one who can make the final decisions. And uh, there's another story a couple chapters later in John where this woman is caught in the act of adultery and she's dragged out of her house Dragged down through the streets, dragged up to where Jesus is in front of everyone, caught in the act, probably half clothed. And it's amazing that they only brought her. I think Jesus probably saw through that. It takes two to commit adultery and there's only one here. And it's a patriarchal society, whatever, doesn't matter. Uh, And Jesus sees through that. And they say like, they bring her before him and they say, uh, this woman was found committing adultery. The law of Moses says we can stone her. And Jesus looks around and he kind of draws something in the ground. It's a weird story. Uh, But then he says, okay, you can stone her. But the 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 person who has not sinned, the person here who has not sinned, you can cast the first stone. And it describes how each of the men walked away because they knew they had no right to judge her. And there she was. Left with Jesus, the only person there who had not sinned, the only person there who could have stood there all day throwing stones until his arm got tired, was standing before her. And he looked at her. It says uh, in John eight ten through 11, Jesus stood up and said to her. Now I imagine he looked her in the eye. He might have been the only person who had actually looked her in the eye. All day, in the midst of her shame, in the midst of her brokenness, in the midst of this—probably was not her first rodeo. This was in the midst of her being finally caught. And some of us know what that feels like—to be finally caught, to our shame, to be in, uh, like brought up in front of everyone. Or some of us deeply, deeply, deeply fear that ever happening. And in this moment, when that happened. Jesus stood up and said, a well, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus, the one person who could and should judge you has already decided that he refuses to condemn you and that he loves you. God is not out to condemn us, but to vindicate us. We have been judged and found righteous. We have been given—if we've been justified—we have been given Christ's righteousness. It's, it talks about Christ sitting at the right hand of God. He stands there as as our righteousness. John Bunyan uh, talks about this. There's a quote, and you can find in page five of the bulletin. He says this. But one day, as I was passing in the field, and I love this, even though he writes really weird. Um, one day as I was passing in the field, and that too with some dashes on my conscience. So something was weighing me down. Something was guilt, uh, like it was guilt or something I'd done. That too with some dashes on my conscience. Fearing that all was not right, suddenly this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And I thought I saw with my, the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There, I say, is my righteousness. So that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, whatever I was doing, God could not say of me he lacks my righteousness for that was just before him. I also saw moreover that it was not, I love this, that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. So what then shall we say about these things? If God is for us and God is for us, then who honestly could really be against us? What if God is actually for you? What if God wasn't sitting back waiting on you to screw up, but in and through everything, he is conforming you into the image of his beloved son, not his son whom he tolerates, not his son whom he kind of says like, oh, he's the red set, redhead stepchild of the family, like, oh, we have to have him in. He, he kind of got in through the back door. We don't know how he got in. His son whom he loves, a son who he tore open the sky at his baptism to say, guys, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased that is the image that he's conforming you into and he already views you like that. It's done. What if the one thing that we doubt the most in this world, the one thing that we have the hardest time believing is real, what if the one thing that seems most impossible about this world, that God could actually consistently, eternally love me? What if it is actually the one thing that is most assured to you in this world? What if the love of Christ is the most secure thing you will ever know? Everything in this world may change. You may change. Everything in this world may change, but what if the one thing we doubt the most is the one thing that is promised to us, that Jesus really does love us? That he really does love us before we got ourselves lovable. That he really does love us before we got ourselves reformed and better. That he really does love you before you finally quit drinking for good. That he really does love you before you finally stopped looking at porn. That he really does love you before you finally decided to treat your kids with kindness. That he has decided already to love you. What if despite our propensity to screw things up, Despite our failures, despite our addictions and our regrets, what if the broken promises, our bad parenting, our drinking, our lusts, our doubts, what if all of our brokenness and the brokenness of the whole world really didn't hold a candle to the overwhelming love of Jesus Christ for you? And the good news is that is actually true. Uh, The band's going to come up and play a song uh, that I love and I just want to invite you in this song just to, um, it'll, it'll be during the offering. I just want to invite you to, to kind of see yourself in it. It's a, it's a song that kind of the verses have a lot of vignettes of, of brokenness, little pictures of brokenness in us, little pictures of brokenness in our world. And I just want to invite you, whether you're a student, whether you are uh, an adult, to find yourself in it, to, to find yourself and go, yeah, okay, I, know, I, I feel that, I, I can see myself in that. And then I want you to pay attention to the chorus that says that in the end, the end is oceans and oceans of love. And and here's the truth, that the last word on your life and the last word on my life is not failure, is not regret, is not I could have done a little bit better, is not that I was a bad parent, is not that you're an alcoholic, is not, the last word on your life is none of these things. The last word, if you are in Christ, the last word on your life is love. That God has chosen to love you And I just want to invite you, maybe for the first time, maybe for a small sliver before you forget it again, to experience that and really believe it and trust it. Pray with me. Father, help us to believe that you really, really do love us. That you have not waited on us to make ourselves lovable, make ourselves better that you have loved us before uh, we ever even had a chance to screw any of this up, that God, you are conforming each of us to the image of your son and that you love us, amen.